pray. Lord, as we take our place under your word today, Lord, would these hands of the word lay hold of us? Would they arrest our spirits? Would they arrest our wandering minds? Would they arrest our wandering hearts? And would you focus us afresh onto you and onto what it means to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Help us, Lord. Amen. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, and concluding in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul is issuing this Philippian church with one long, emotion-filled exhortation to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Understanding that they are citizens of heaven, that this world that seduces us to imagine that it is home isn't our home, and indeed heaven is our home. Understanding that, he exhorts them then to live as citizens, to behave as citizens, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his instruction is, as I said last week, very similar to the marine captain's instruction to John Bassalone in the series The Pacific. That wonderful scene, as I explained last week, where the captain pulls John Bassalone aside. He, John Bassalone is a World War II hero. He's going to get the Medal of Honor for his heroics in the Guadalcanal. And as the captain spends time with John the night before he receives the Medal of Honor, a medal which was given at the time by President Roosevelt, this was a serious honor. He's aware, John, you're going to get the Medal of Honor tomorrow. There's just one problem. You're a drunkard. You're a street brawler. Your life really doesn't reflect this. And so he says to John, tomorrow you will get the Medal of Honor. The highest honor that can be given to any serviceman by our nation. And so from now on, try and act like it's yours. That's what Paul is doing here. He's trying to communicate to us. He's aware that we haven't earned the medal of the gospel. He's aware we haven't earned our salvation. For the medal that we wear on our bodies has not been earned by us. It's been earned by Jesus Christ. He's the one that's done everything on our behalf and then he's passed the medal on to us. He says, this, this is a gift for you. Through faith, this is, this is your life now. You've been forgiven of your sin and adopted. You've been given heavenly citizenship. This is your story. So wear it. But Paul wants to make it clear to us that although we haven't earned that salvation, we haven't earned that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we do through our lives exhibit the power of the gospel. We don't earn it, but we do exhibit it. We don't merit it, but we do mark it. We don't deserve it, but we do demonstrate it. We're called by the grace of God and for the glory of God to allow our lives to be walking, speaking, human illustrations of the power of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And right here then in this text, in these first four verses, he talks to us about this one thing. He talks to us about the vital importance of having a unity in heart and mind for the sake of the gospel. That's what these four verses are about. The importance, the priority, the implications, and the priority of having a unity of heart and mind for the sake of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 2, he says, Complete my joy then by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord 
and of one mind. He's already highlighted the same issue in chapter 1, verse 27, when he explains to us that we are called to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, and strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. If you remember from last week, he's deliberately invoking imagery of a Roman battalion as the centurions would stand together in a line and surround themselves. They'd have a shield in front of them. They'd have shields over their head and they would walk as one. And he's saying, as Christians, you need to be like that. You need to be of one mind and one heart. You need to be able to stand together for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to be able to stand firm in the gospel together and you need to be able to move forward together for the gospel. It's both holding the line and advancing the gospel as you stand one in unity. He's already talked to us about it. But he's not done with us yet on this issue. To Paul, this isn't just an important issue. This is vitally, this, this is just absolutely vital that Christians understand this. And so he wants to talk about it again. I've already told you about it, but I want to talk to you about it again. You see, Paul knows that disunity in this local church will rob them of their gospel joy. He's aware that if they start struggling and surrounding themselves with secondary issues, and disunity will be the fruit of that. They'll start to have in, inward angst. They will start to struggle with each other. A lot of their energy and passion will be sorting out conflicts in the local church, and he doesn't want that. He's also aware that Disunity will rob them of their gospel witness. It's very clear, John 17, that Jesus says it's through your love for one another, through your serving one another, that people will know that you're my disciples. But if you start to struggle with one another, and you start to lose the mindship of one another, you don't stand alongside each other anymore, there's just difficulty in the church, the world looks on and thinks, you're just like us. Is that the effect of the gospel? It doesn't look very attractive. Paul is aware that when it comes to disunity, the stakes could not be higher for a local church. And so he wants them to ensure that they walk together in one mind and be of one heart and mind. Now, make no mistake, Paul is not talking here about uniformity. He's talking about unity. There's a difference. Uniformity means that every person has to agree on every single issue. We all have to eat the same, we all have to listen the same, we all have to school the same. We all have to watch the same, we all have to dress the same, because that's uniformity. It's like the Borg. If you've ever seen it, you know, it's just the Borg. Everybody has to start doing exactly the same thing. He's not talking about that. He loves diversity. He champions it in the book of Ephesians. He's like, you know what, these are secondary issues. You can disagree on these things, that's fine. This is good, it's healthy for a local church. But on this issue, on understanding the priority and importance of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, you must stand as one. You must gather together on this one. You must be of one heart and one mind in the gospel. So he gives them, in and around these verses, verses 1 and 3 and 4, he gives them a lesson on unity. My friends, it's a lesson I think that every local church needs to take. It's a lesson we need to take. Given the harsh realities of our humanity and our indwelling sin, Given the fact that we're being made like Jesus, but not Jesus yet, and knowing the heart struggles that can then take place in family life and then in accord church life, and given the harsh reality that we have an enemy that is seeking to destroy us, the evil one who is around us like a lion, 
The one who wants to rob this local church of going forward. The one who wants to stop us in our tracks and rob us of all joy and all future of the gospel. Given the harsh realities of those things, we need to take this lesson on humility, I think, and we need to do it attentively and listening carefully to what Paul is saying. See, I think it would be the beginning of the end for us as a local church if we perceive in this book, well, we would never disunite like they are. Really? Yes, we would. Given indwelling sin that's in all your hearts and all my heart. Given the fact that we have an enemy that is seeking to destroy us and seeking to destroy me. We need to be sobered by this lesson on unity. Because this can happen to any local church. Remember many years ago, when I used to be in C.J. Mahaney's life group when we lived in America you know, for a year. And I remember us just telling us a story. How he'd been woken up the night before and he had been woken up by this guy who was from another church. It was about one o'clock in the morning. He was just telling him how the church was dividing up and what should he do. And CJ met with him, but in, in all reality, it was too late for that church. There was massive disunity across a whole range of issues that had become primary issues, at least in people's minds. That church broke up and it never reformed. All those people just went their separate ways, did their separate thing. I don't want that to happen to our local church. I want us to be sobered by this and I want us to be equipped by this important lesson from the Apostle Paul. So three points this morning. The basis of our unity, the expression of our unity, and then finally the cultivation of our unity, all taken from these verses. So let's start at the beginning, the basis of our unity. See, as Paul addresses the Philippian church and indeed us, as we take our seats around the Philippian church and listen in, realizing that in all reality God is addressing us through Paul, we learn in verse 1 the basis of our unity. Listen to what he says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. See, that is the basis of our unity, according to the Apostle Paul. Four theological realities that are true for all Christians. When he says, if... It's not like, you know, I was beginning to wonder about you as a local church. I don't know whether you've got this or not. The word is really almost since. That's the way it's written. But he's using the word if because he wants them to, to recollect things that have happened in their lives. He wants them to really think about this. He's saying, I know this is true for you, but if it's true, think about it for a minute. Is this true for you? He knows it is, but he wants to cultivate in their hearts provoking reflection. And he gives them then four theological realities that relate to their salvations that relate indeed to our salvations. These are the basis of our unity as well. Four things that relate to our salvations are four things in which he points very clearly and importantly to different members of the Trinity. And he does it with genius. So let's look at them. Let's look briefly at each phrase. Number one, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, he points us first of all to our salvations and the work of the Son finished work of Jesus Christ in our place. You know, that phrase, in Christ, is without doubt Paul's favorite summary expression of what it means to be a Christian. And what he means by that phrase is our sharing with Christ and all the blessings that Christ has gained for us in his life and death and resurrection. And Paul does it all the time. So to the Ephesians in chapter 1 verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he starts to unpack what that means. Explain to them that in Christ, you've been forgiven of your sin. And in Christ, you've been justified. And in Christ, you've been reconciled to God the Father. In Christ, you've been adopted into the very family of God. In Christ, you've been given the Spirit. And in Christ, heaven is going to be your home. He wants us to let us know that, you know that medal around your neck? You didn't earn it, but it is now yours. And it may as well have in Christ written on the back of it. Because that's your story. This is what makes it such a glorious reality for you. And so Paul begins this section when he wants to communicate to them about the importance and priority of unity by helping them see, listen, if there is any encouragement then for you, this encourages you that you're a Christian. There's any encouragement in Christ and any comfort from love. It's his second theological truth. So he points us now to the Father. He's not pointing us here to the Son. He's pointing us now to the Father and asking us, is there any comfort in his love? Is there any comfort for you? And in the fact that at the right time, the Father who dwelt in perfect unity with the Son, who dwelt in perfect joy with his boy, is there any comfort for you that at the right time, he then sent him to the cross for you? Is there any comfort in the fact that by grace he sent his son so that you could be adopted into his family? See, Paul points us first of all to what Christ has done and the present realities of that. And then he points us to the work of the Father. And points us in particular to the Father's adopting love. This is what J.I. Packer says about that adopting love. It's just so wonderful. He says, justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance of us in the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, and that is never in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us and guilt gnaws at us, making us restless and miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our Maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this is what the Gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But, contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea. Conceived in terms of love and views God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. Listen, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. To know that you're forgiven of your sin and you've been reconciled to God, that you've been justified, that it's been dealt with in full, that's a truly great thing. But to know that that judge has become your father, that he's called your name and brought in you and 
him into a relationship together where he's going to be your father and you're going to be his child, where he can watch over you, where he can love you. That's greater still. And so Paul says, if then this is true for you, if you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, he goes on, number three, in the Spirit. Points us now to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself, the one who indeed opened our eyes to behold the glories of the gospel in the first place. For outside the work of the Holy Spirit, none of us would be sitting in this room. The Father would have sent the Son, the Son would have gone. There's then one needed to communicate to us, to come into our lives, to open our eyes, so that when we hear the gospel, we can respond. So that we can actually make it possible to go from death to life. Who does that? The Holy Spirit does that. So if, church, you have any participation in the Spirit, if it is true for you that you became a Christian, if by grace you now worship Jesus Christ as your Lord and King, that's through the Holy Spirit. That is participating with the Holy Spirit. And so if there is any encouragement then in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, finally any affection and sympathy, he now widens the net to the full Godhead. The affection and sympathy of the entire Godhead. Making it clear that's why you're here. Because Father, Son and Holy Spirit all played a part in your salvation. That's why you're here. And if they then had affection and sympathy on you, if this is true for you. Do you see how he's doing this? Isn't it clever? He's not just saying to them, you know what? Just sort it out and stand together. No, he he wants to make it clear to them. If these things are true for you. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This isn't a selfish joy from Paul at the moment. This is the joy of a pastor that says these things are true, guys. They're true of us. And disunity will cost us so much. So complete my joy. Understanding these things and the realities in our lives. Let's stand together. Let's be of one heart and one mind when it comes to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's premise is never just do it. It never motivates people like that. Why? Because it is so unmotivated. They're just rules then, aren't they? You know, he could have just got to the end of chapter 1, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Right. Do nothing. Could have done that. No, he wants to take us back again and remind us. No, hang on a minute. I'm serious. You're a Christian. You're in Christ because Jesus died for you. The Father sings over you because you've been adopted into the family. The Holy Spirit is with you because he dwells in you. The entire Godhead showed you affection and sympathy. We don't want to destroy that. We don't want to destroy them what he's given us. So complete my joy. Stand together. Walk together. Give one heart. Give one mind. Paul wants us to be motivated by grace. So he points us to our salvations. And if we are astute as we are pointed to it, it does have a sobering and an impacting and overwhelming effect on our lives, doesn't it? This isn't just that I'm a Christian, therefore I should. She said, do you know what it means to be a Christian? 
And do you know what through grace what he's done is he's built you together in a local church. Don't, don't squander that. The basis of our unity then is verse 1. He then moves on in verses 3 and 4 to the expression of our, univer- of our unity. Look at verse 3 with me. He really works out and explains to us now what does it look like? How does this play out in our lives? It says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And one of the things I love about Paul's teaching, whatever book you pick, is he's just so practical. He talks to us through theology, but then he helps us see the way it works and the way it needs to work. I did engineering at university, so this appeals to me a lot. I love to know the facts, but then I love to know how things work. And Paul seems to be wired similarly. He gives us the facts, and then he explains, okay, let me talk to you, because I hope you've gathered by now that you need to be standing together as, with one mind and one heart, but you may not understand what that will look like. So he gives us three things, three clear things, of what that actually looks like to stand together in heart and mind for the sake of the gospel, how it, our unity is expressed. Here's the first, in verse 3a, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Do nothing. Paul is giving no room there for rivalry and conceit. Because Paul is aware, I believe, that it is rivalry, i.e. selfish ambition, and conceit that could ultimately cost this church of their unity. Do you want to blow a church up? Get some people in it that specialize in rivalry and conceit. Fan into flame, selfish ambition and conceit, it will blow up. If the leaders do not gather around that and deal with that, the church will inevitably blow up. And Paul's instruction then to us all as Christians is when it comes to your local church, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. That was the threat to the Philippian church, and I submit to you in all honesty, that's the threat to Sovereign Grace Church Sydney as well. Is that a present concern for me as your pastor? Not with specifics, no. I'm not aware of anybody that's specializing in selfish ambition in this local church or conceit, and I love it. I think we're in a real peacetime in that sense. Praise God for that. I like peacetimes. But... If we're not astute, given the level of indwelling sin in all our hearts, it doesn't take long for selfish ambition and conceit to rise up and then cause disunity. Selfish ambition means this. It means the pursuit of self-fulfillment and self-advancement for the purpose of self-promotion. You hear that? Self-fulfillment and self-advancement, pursuing that for the purpose of self-promotion promotion. It's not just somebody seeking to play their part in a local church for the glory of the Lord. It's somebody saying, I want to be a somebody. I don't want to clean the loose. I don't want to work on the kids' work. No one's going to see me there. I want to be in the band. I want to preach. Have you not heard me? Well, funnily enough, no. Well, I'm very, very good. And it's that desire to be, to be promoting yourself because you want to be a somebody. You don't just want to play our part, you want to play the part. You want, you want to come to the church events and people to go, oh, there he is. And you'll be thinking, yes, there I am. You know, that's what you want to do. That's, that's what goes on in people's hearts when it comes to selfish ambition and conceit. 
having an infatuated and exaggerated assessment of oneself. And Paul is clear, do nothing. Do not allow anything in your life and in your local church to be done through rivalry or conceit. Why? Because it will cause you harm like nothing else. You imagine going back to that scene that he's talking about, about the battalion standing together with their shields. Can you imagine what it'd be like if one guy or one girl just goes running out? Hey, check me out! I'm pretty cool, I can do this by myself. What would that look like? What would that mean? Well, first, they're going to get shot out heavily for a start by the enemy. They're going to be taken down. So you don't want it for them. But you don't want it for these dudes because back here there's a massive hole in the armory all of a sudden and rot and corruption starts to pour in. That's the power of selfish ambition. It's when somebody is no longer happy just playing a part. They might even stay behind the shields, but they're put it, passing around notes. You know, when can I be a group leader? Do you think I'd make a group leader? I think I'd make a very good group leader. You heard me sing. I very good sing. And they're not happy about just playing their part. They're not happy just holding the line in the gospel, whatever it means to do. They're more important about the one. It is more important about the one than me as an individual, but to that individual, screw the one, it's about me. What part am I going to play? Where do I fit? Paul's saying, guys, don't let that happen in your life. It will ruin your church. It will cause disunity. It tells us in the book of James that where there's selfish ambition, there is all forms of corruption. If you want to know what selfish ambition looks like, just to give you a precursor of where we're going in a few weeks, chapter 2, verse 14, says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Why did he say that? Well, because people with selfish ambition tend to grumble and they tend to question a lot. And it's not just a questioning as in, hey, I have a question. It's a, why are we doing this? This sucks. There is a tone of grumbling and heavy questioning. And whenever that occurs in our own lives, we've got to be willing to assess our own lives and wonder, maybe there's selfish ambition in my heart. Maybe that's why I'm moaning all the time. Maybe that's why I'm always having a goal. Because I want, to, I want to be a somebody. Paul is saying, listen, don't do it. Why? Because it will harm you. It will harm the unity of the church. But that's not all. He then says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In headline, don't do anything out of rivalry or selfish ambition or conceit, but instead... In humility, you can count others more significant than yourself. Going back to the battalion scene again, as they stand together in a line as a local church with shields, holding the line for the gospel and being ready to take the gospel forward. He's saying, as you stand in that line, think of those around you as more important than you. Care for them like you would love to be cared for. Encourage them more than you're being encouraged. Serve them more than you're being served. Make it about them. If there's a role in the church or something that you really want to do, encourage other people to go for it. Make it about them. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then there's a summary statement 
really the third statement of what it really looks like to express this unity. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now for me, as I examine this scripture, this is a daunting point. Because it's a point where I think Paul picks his head up from his writing equipment and looks at every Philippian in the eye. Because he says, let each of you, you, Matt, Mike, and Alex, Beth, and Andrew, and David, let each of you. He's not talking to them about a blob. He said, no, I'm thinking about you personally. And specifically, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but as you found it to flame unity in your local church, think about others. Look to the interests of others. And so in your lives, in your days, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but prefer others. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, in your actions, in the way you live, let, let each of you no longer just look at yourselves, but prefer others. Think about them more than you. And let each of you, in your words, in the way you speak, let each of you not only just think about yourselves, but think about other people. Think about what's going to bless them. You know, I was thinking a lot about words this week in that regard. and I was thinking, you know, for Paul, as he pastors these people, obviously the heart issue is exactly the same. Tell you when it comes to words, right? I mean, apparently, from what I can understand, we're all meant to be saying 25,000 words a day. Each individual speaks on average, according to World Magazine, 25,000, and I'm sure that's true, 25,000 words every day. They all come from their mouth. You see, as Paul pastors the Philippian church, he would only have to worry about what they are literally saying to one another. What I am literally saying with my mouth while looking you in the eye to you as a person. Letter writing wasn't exactly huge. It was actually quite complicated. But you would be able to talk to people. You'd be able to communicate to people. And Paul wants to ensure that those words play a part in building people up. He says to the Ephesian church, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as is such, such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to the hearer. Paul has in his mind at that point, all the time, in a desire to keep the unity, which is part of the issue in the Ephesian church as well, ensure that you don't speak corrupting words, only that which is good for building up and gives grace to the hearer. But all Paul had to worry about primarily was spoken words. As a pastor in this day and age, I have to worry about social media as well. Because I suggest we can make far more noise today without words than they could ever make then. We can throw out one lines on Twitter and suddenly 500 people have got it. So many of you wouldn't want to come up to this mic because you'd be nervous about speaking to 180. But are quite happy in front of Facebook of 800, you just say whatever you want. See, I think one of the dangers of social media, and I like social media, I think it can be a means of grace. Like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, I think they can be great. And I use them and I enjoy them. I think one of the biggest mistakes we can make as a Christian, though, is to perceive that that area of our walk is outside of the Bible. What's that got to do with anything I do? It's got everything to do, because I believe as a Christian, I must ensure that I not let any corrupting talk come out of my mouth, but only as such is good for building up, 
as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to the hearer. And so whether I be talking into a microphone to many people, whether I be talking one-on-one to an individual, or whether I be typing my heart to hundreds of people, I'm going to give an account for those words. And so are you. So one of the great dangers of Facebook is we can think that it's outside of what the Bible teaches, and by very nature, Facebook ends up being all about myself. Check me out! And yet the Bible makes the point, it's not about you. You know, it's okay to have one kid of your, one picture of your kid, but once you get to about 300, you start to wonder, we don't really want to see that anymore. And I'll tell you why we might not want to see that anymore. Because there are people in this church that can't have children. And they're looking on. And it's easy to say, well, they can hide. They can hide me. Paul doesn't say, well, you know, as you're talking, make sure there aren't oh, those around you. He's saying, guys, for the sake of unity, this shouldn't be. When we're saying something, we need to be mindful of others. We need to be mindful of those in the battalion lines with us. We need to be aware, is this going to give grace to that person? If I answer back this way, if I give my party political broadcast for an issue, is it going to give grace to this church? Will it help them? Will it help them unite around the gospel? If the answer is ever, no, I don't think it will. I think some might find that quite offensive or really difficult. Then I suggest to you, on the premise of counting others more significant than yourself, don't type it. Don't say it. Why would you say it? We're called to give grace to the hearers. We're called to be a salt to one another, to do all things to build one another up, to help, to aid, to strengthen the church. And as we sit under Paul's leadership then, and his words that he's counselling us on the importance of unity, I think if he was pastoring in this day and age, he'd have a lot to say about social media. And he'd be saying, you know what, whatever you say, whether it come out your mouth or come out written, you must guard yourself. Think about others. Think about what they will perceive. Let it guard and help you as you discern what the best way forward is. Why? Because unity in heart and mind for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ is vitally important. As we stand together on these things, it has to all be about the gospel. So finally then, number three, the cultivation of our unity. How do we cultivate it? Well, Paul, I think, highlights it very carefully and wonderfully at the start of verse 3. It says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. What is the key to unity? What is the engine room for unity? What is the character quality necessary for unity? Humility. Humility is needed in a local church if people are going to walk together as one. They're going to have to humble themselves. You know, first century Greco-Roman culture, particularly in a Roman colony like Philippi, the word humility would be like, are you kidding me? Did, did you just say humility? I mean, that just wouldn't be prized at all. That would be a word associated with slaves and servants. You'd be like, yeah, they're the humble ones. But humility, you know, I'm pretty capable, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. It would just be despised. It wouldn't be prized. They wouldn't want to be known as humble people. 
I mean, this wasn't like sovereign grace living, you know. This, this wasn't like, you are so humble. It would be like, you are so humble. <laughs> you know, that, it just wouldn't be something even remotely priced. And I submit to you in all reality, our culture today isn't much different. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, although humility is at the heart of the Christian character, no virtue is more foreign to the world's ways. The world exalts pride, not humility. Throughout history, fallen human nature has shunned humility and advocated pride. For the most part, humility has been looked on as a weakness, something ignoble to be despised. People unashamedly claim to be proud of their jobs, their accomplishments, their achievements with their children, and on and on. Society loves to recognize and praise those who have accomplished something outstanding. Therefore, ostentation, boasting, parading, and exalting are the world's stock in trade. It's true. Unfortunately, the church often reflects that same worldly perspective and pattern. But in doing so, we contradict the very gospel we claim to promote. Because the hallmark of the gospel is not pride and self-exaltation, but humility. Frenzy is right. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if this is true for you, if you really believe you've been saved by grace, then live in a manner worthy of that grace. Paul, it's not about ostentation and parading and, oh, well, check me out. To Paul, it's all about check him out. Check the Savior out. And while you're at it, I want to prefer you all. I want you to succeed. Whether, whatever happens to me, I want you to do well. That's the premise for Paul. And what that looks like is humility. Literally, counting others more significant than ourselves. Thinking more highly of others than we think about ourselves. Being preoccupied with how others are doing rather than how I'm doing. See, to Paul, the me-church mentality was an absolute anathema. To Paul, church is all about Christ and then others. And I fit under that. It's about Jesus. It's about other people succeeding. And I'll just play a part. Just any part. I don't mind For Paul, the engine room of unity was humility. So pastorally, and just by way of closing, I want you to give us some practical applications of how we can cultivate humility in our lives. I think there's nothing worse than when you hear a message and you think, that sounds great, I need to cultivate humility. And they say, amen, and you're done. And you have no idea how to cultivate this very thing you've just realized is the key to the thing that you need to be doing. And I want you to understand, as I go through these points, I am a proud man seeking to grow in, hum- in humility. I'm not coming as a guy that's saying, oh, if you do these things, you will be humble like me. That's not the premise I'm coming on. I'm saying, listen, I'm a proud guy trying to battle with pride in my life, seeking to cultivate humility in my life like Paul is talking to us about. And these are some of the ways I do it. And they might help you. I serve you as well. So how do we cultivate unity? We cultivate unity by cultivating humility. Now how do we do that? Well, number one, first idea I'd like to give to you is study the attributes of God, particularly the incommunicable attributes of God. 
Incommunicable attributes are really attributes that reveal God's infinite difference from us. So the things, the part of his character that just aren't really like us. So God's independence, God's omnipresence, God's omniscience, his unchangeableness, his infiniteness, all these things where God is just totally and utterly different from us. The New Bible Dictionary on on the word infiniteness and the character of God in that says when we say God is infinite, we pass completely out of the reach of our experience. I love that. When we stop and we start to think, okay, I'm just going to try and imagine it, being alive forever and ever and ever, all the time, having never been born or died. You can't do it. It's just, I, I, can't, I can't get it. I can't get a handle on that. That's the point. That's what has the humbling effect, is you realize God is far greater than you. He can do things that you will never be able to do. Matthew Henry says, The greatest and best man in the world must say, By the grace of God, I am who I am. But God simply says, I am who I am. When we stand before the greatness of God and see him for who he really is, present everywhere all of the time, able to weep with some and rejoice with others at exactly the same time, all-knowing, able to know exactly the word on your mouth before you've even created it in your brain, for every individual that has ever walked the earth ever, to know every flap of a butterfly wing across the universe at the same time, and to be able to see that distinct moment, this moment, at the same ability to what was, took, take, took place 10,000 years ago and what will take place 10,000 years in the future, to see everything all the same equally. God's an amazing God. And when you study Him and see Him, you shrink to your true size. You start to realize who you are and who He really is. So Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem would be my first recommendation. It's an outstanding book and it has a whole section on incommunicable attributes. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's the whole book that talks about God in his greatness and majesty. And likewise, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. There's three recommendations that will help you study the attributes of God and will have an effect in your life. Number two, study the doctrines of grace. So election, calling, justification, adoption, perseverance. Study these things. You know, I grew up as an absolute Arminian. My whole premise was we choose God and God plays no part in that whatsoever. And it's all us. I thought that's the way it was. And then I started to get into Reformed theology and read Reformed theology and get taught it and start off with I didn't like it. But then I started to grow to love it as I realized this is incredible truth. God has saved me. The reason why I'm here is because of Him. He preordained this whole thing. He adopted me. He sent His Son for me. He now holds me. He helps me to persevere and always will. When you study the doctrines of grace, it will cultivate humility in your life because you'll realize that the only thing you brought to your salvation was your sin. And it's hard then when you live with that as a daily reality to come into church and go, What about me? When you study the doctrines of grace and they live in you, you will walk through those doors and you will walk in on this premise. It's amazing I'm even here. Scandalous grace that I'm in. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. Yet God saved me. And he forgave me. And he adopted me. 
He's given me, he's given me family. Oh. Lord, it is better to be a doorkeeper in your house than a thousand days elsewhere. It's just good to be here. Studying the doctrines of grace will cultivate humility in our lives. Number three, regularly survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. John Stott, in his wonderful message of the Galatians, his wonderful message to the Galatians commentary, says it this way: he says every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, "I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying." Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. And it is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. I agree with him. It's hard to be proud when you stand near the cross. We live our lives around Calvary. If we allow the words of the Gospels to be dwelling in our hearts, the book of Galatians, the book of Romans to be dwelling in our hearts, Gospel-centered music to be the theme tunes of our lives, as we stand around Calvary, humility will be cultivated in our hearts. Because it's hard to stand near the cross and be proud. Just stand there amazed. And then you hit your knees in humility. Before regularly bring to mind all of God's benefits. This, has a great, this is a wonderful means of grace of cultivating humility in our lives. It's one that King David modelled incredibly well. In Psalm 103, King David says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You know, it's so easy in our lives, or it is for me anyway, to become focused on what I don't have. You ever experienced that? To start listing before the Lord all the things that you don't have yet, that you think you need. Well, I don't have that. And I've been to that person's house and I don't have that. I don't have lots of things actually come to think of it. In fact, my life's quite tough. There's lots of things I don't have. And that promotes pride, doesn't it? Because so often, if left unchecked, it promotes an accusation of God as if to say, if you really love me, you'd be blessing me with these things. So the very fact I don't have them, it's probably an indictment on you. What's going on? And we may or may not be so blatant as that, in heart, that's what we think. And yet, King David says, in effect, if you want to walk in humility, then forget not all his benefits. Forget not. My friends, one sure way of cultivating humility in our hearts is to forget not all the benefits of the Lord. Why? Because this is where we begin. We wake up in the morning... And if we make it our mental state to then not only survey the wondrous cross, but remind ourselves of who we really are and what we deserve, what we realize is, I should be dead and in hell for my sin. But I'm not. 
I'm lying in a bed that's pretty comfortable. And I have pillows and I have, I have air to breathe. And I have a room that is actually very pleasant with, with carpet on the floor. I, I've got loads of clothes. And, and downstairs you hear the sound of children laughing. I've got a family. Lord, I, I don't deserve a family. I deserve to be far from you. And, and I have a wife who I do not deserve. Who God has been so gracious to me. In. in fact, I have, a, I have a home and I don't own it, but I have a wonderful home to live in. I'm not persecuted for my faith. I have a wonderful church. And the list goes on as a discipline of forgetting not all his benefits. Rather than waking up in the morning, this room still sucks. It's a rental, don't own one. Feels a bit cold as well, can't afford heating up. And on you go. One is proud, one will cultivate humility. Forget not all his benefits. And you will start to realize, God has lavished his blessing on you. He has lavished it on you. And gratitude and joy and humility will start to become your themes if you do that. Number five, quickly finish each day mindful of your need to sleep. Sounds not that important, but I think it is a wonderful exercise as cultivating humility. Why? Because God never sleeps. Never does. This Friday night, we had our, our foster children again. They started now the process of coming to live with our family all the time. As so on Friday night, it was chaotic in our family, not least because they wanted to get up every two hours. So nine o'clock, they eventually got to sleep. One o'clock, three o'clock, five o'clock, I'm playing. We're hanging out time before they go to sleep again. Next day, Brendan's bucks. I felt ill most of the day. For all you mums that do this regularly, you are heroes. I am not. You know, it's just you just think this is this is intense. I remember it. I remember doing it with our own kids. It's like the, the clock's wound back. We're doing it again, and it's hard work. But this is what I did before I went to sleep last night, knowing that I was going to preach on this. Lord, I thank you that even after a day that has brought me great joy but I am totally exhausted. When I sleep, you'll still be overseeing my kids. You'll still be overseeing my life. You'll still be overseeing the world. And I am decrepit because I have to sleep. But you are magnificent because you never sleep. It'll cultivate humility in your heart. You just practice that as a daily practice. Number six, Regularly laugh at yourself with others. Very important. And if you're in my life group, I will help you with that by picking fun at you and then we will all laugh at you um, because it's fun. And no one's going to be laughing harder, I hope, when attention is drawn to me than than me because I think it's a way of cultivating humility. You know, what I've experienced is proud people take themselves very seriously. Humble people seem to be able to laugh at themselves because they're aware... Yeah, that is pretty stupid when I say that. It is pretty stupid when you say, Newport West Public School. It's funny! You know, it's not like a, oh my gosh, that's awful. Um, Okay. Pride causes us to be embarrassed for weeks. Humility, you think, yeah, I am quirky. eh? I do some things that are crazy. You know, I don't like eating veg and I think it's funny. It's okay just to laugh at the things you do. It's not the end of the world. I think it helps us cultivate humility. And if you have body deformities, tell people about them because we want to laugh at them in particular. That will be a way of cultivating humility in your life like you've never known. Number seven, diligently invite and pursue input from others. 
We need others not only to help us laugh, we need others to pursue. Because that will help us. Proverbs 11 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counsellors, there is safety. The Bible talks to us an awful lot about the need for others in our lives. And if I may be as bold, I'd say one of the things that I've observed in Australia for the last four years is people are more independent than anybody I've ever seen in the world. Functionally. So people make these massive decisions. Yeah, just to let you know, I'm moving two weeks' time. Okay. Okay. Have you talked to anybody about it? Well, no, but but I'm packing and stuff. Okay. But what that shows is an ability in and of ourselves, or at least perceivability, to see our whole lives with 20-20 vision. We see all our heart issues with 20-20 vision. We see all the good and all the bad with 20-20 vision. And yet the Bible says, where there is no guidance, a people falls. The Bible is trying to help us see, you need others in your life. Because your hearts can be deceptive to you, as can be mine. We can get things wrong. We don't see our lives with 2020 vision. We don't see all the things that could possibly happen with 2020 vision. And so we need counselors. Is that a law? No. But it's all the way through Proverbs, so it's a wisdom. And I think one of the ways we cultivate humility is by bringing other people into our lives. So here's an exercise. Husbands, I want you to go home. So what I want you to say to your wife. If you knew I wouldn't get angry, what's one thing that you think I could be growing in? as I become more like Jesus. And then as a wife, do it back. For singles, do it to friends. Go to your group leader and say, hey, you've seen me for the last year. Is there any area where you think I might need to grow in the way I position myself for the group? See, that experience that you're feeling in your hearts now, oh, that sounds really bad. That's pride. Humility. You say, yeah, I need other people's eyes on my life. I need help. I've not got it all sorted out. Bring people into your life. For decisions, for heart, bring them in. And then finally, number eight. Diligently ask the giver of grace for help. Hebrews 4, the best verses in in the entire Bible. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Friends, we need the Lord, don't we? We need his help. We're going to cultivate humility. We need his help. So we need to pray. And here then is what we can anticipate. As we pray to the Lord... And as we practice one or two or three of these different things, here's what we can anticipate. Humility will start to be cultivated in our hearts. And as humility is started to cultivate in our hearts, the fruit as a body will be unity. We'll be able to stand together. Unity in heart and mind for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ is vitally important. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. 
pride and humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the way you address us in your word. You don't just call us to tasks and then leave us and wish us well as we leave. You, you call us to tasks and you leave the indwelling Holy Spirit in our hearts to help us and guide us. And you give us your word as guardrails as to know how to move forward. Lord, would we then cultivate humility in this local church? Well, I thank you for this local church. I thank you that humility, in my assessment, is already part of the story of this church. Lord, this isn't a corrective. And I thank you that it's not a corrective. It's a help and an aid for our future. Oh, Lord, as we cultivate humility, would we stand then together all the more, preferring those around us, glorying those around us, encouraging those around us, and would it all then in this local church be about you and indeed them for your glory?